Thank you, Elise and James. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we come to you with these songs being our prayers. We, we rejoice in the redemption we have in you, and we must proclaim it. And, and we wish we had more than just one mouth to use. We would point them in every direction to declare to everyone near us and to all the nations that you are our great redeemer. So, Father, we thank you for these classic timeless hymns and these wonderful texts that have stood the test of time, all about your fame and your glory. And as we press through this hour in our study of your word and and a, a gracious and merciful and compassionate stance in our hearts through this difficult subject, I pray that again you will demonstrate your presence with us, demonstrate your headship over this church, and demonstrate yet again that your strength is known in weakness. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to see you this evening, and I invite you to open your copy of Scriptures to 2 Corinthians with me this this evening, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm just going to jump right into our study here. It's been heavy on my heart, and I just had a hard time pushing my... My, de- my chair away from the desk at my home office to come in tonight, um, still just just pouring over scripture, and, and even since my nap, when I got up from my nap today, from my chair, um, that was an hour and a half ago, this series has grown by two more sermons, so uh, it's now up to six, and we're going to start with, four, we started with four, but it's something that's really on my heart, and I just want to share it with you as a pastor uh, and as a shepherd I guess I I will start just by telling you a story. You've heard bits and pieces of this story before in different sermons um, that uh, I have used it for an illustration, but let me just kind of piece things together and give you the full picture, and it's a picture of my, my mom, and my mom's name is Lois, as you know, I, I, um, conducted her funeral right before COVID started, November of 2019, and uh, I miss her. I miss my dad, too, who passed away in 1989. Um, Mom and dad, Lois and Harry, uh, fell in love as teenagers here in the Detroit area. They went to Denby High School, and, and uh, yeah, both of them came from uh, families where my, grand, my two grandfathers were not very religious and very involved in church, not committed at all, actually, though towards the end of my grandpa newcomer's life, I was able to go through the gospel with him and, and talk through those items with him, and he professed uh, that he was a believer. But as far as the family that my mom and dad, the families my mom and dad grew up in, they were not regular um, in church as far as being driven by their parents and having that home setting. But both claim and would claim up to the point of their, their passing that they were both saved. They both responded to the gospel during their younger years. And so there were a lot of assumptions that they made about each other, and that's that each other was a Christian. And uh, my earliest memory is that I... I uh, was um, a member of Calvary Baptist Church in Roseville, Michigan, but my understanding is that prior to that, my first two years of life, I was Presbyterian, and I was even baptized as a baby in the Presbyterian Church, Knox Presbyterian, over off of 11 Mile Road and around that area in Warren. So I, I grew up familiar with church, but it wasn't long till I realized that um, Dad didn't go to church with us, ever. I have two or three memories of him at church before I was 18. One was for my baptism when I was uh, about seven or eight years old, and the other one was my high school graduation. Uh, He did sneak to a church service at Bob Jones University when they came to visit me when I was a a student there, but that doesn't count for church. That's a school. Um, And uh, so, yeah, Dad was never in church. You say, well, what's the full story there? Well, early on in the marriage... Um, it was obvious that my dad was no longer living a life consistent with Scripture. And it would have a lot to do with um, heavy drinking, 
It would have a lot to do with friends in business as he was starting his businesses. And it would have a lot to do with entertainment, private entertainment preferences that my dad held. And uh, so early on in their marriage, there was a, a growing spiritual divide. Mom had an interest to be faithful in church, and uh, only an interest, but because of this growing divide, it was confusing for my mom. She would tell you that when she was in midlife, she hit what she would call her dark years, and these were several years where my mom would actually follow my dad into what he was into, and, uh, and she was miserable. Looking back, she would say she was miserable during those dark years, and then it was um, it, it, the swing resulted in her taking some harder looks at my dad, who was only going further and further down this path. Now, don't get me wrong, both parents loved all three of us kids. I'm the youngest. My middle sister uh, is around 10, 11 years older than I am, and my oldest sister is around 14, 15 years older than I am. Our parents loved us. We never doubted that. And they provided for us well and, and uh, even paid for, for our schooling. Um, so good situation there uh, for the most part. But dad's lifestyle and his preferences would make their way home with them at times or take us as a family into them. And so the divide was getting a little more stark. And it's at that time that a pastor's wife, uh, her name was Marcella Rhodes at Calvary Baptist Church of Warren, got a hold of my mom. And she said, I want to help you. My mom went to her for counseling, and she was more than happy to, to embrace her. And uh, what, what started out as a, as a long-term counseling relationship actually birthed a woman's Bible study at Calvary of Roseville that ended up going on for several decades after that and being very, very large, growing, uh, drawing many ladies every year to that Bible study. My mom was the reason that that study started. And Marcella Rhodes counseled my mom into a stability of how to be married to an unbelieving or disobedient spouse. What's the plan? What's the long-haul plan? And my mom listened and grew, and, and it was by this point that I was uh, growing up as a young child, and, and I just remember my mom going to church on Sunday mornings. You see, she was only allowed to go to church on Sunday mornings. Um, it was at one point where my father would allow her to go Sunday morning and Sunday night, and she would be involved uh, with the choir. Um, I have faint memories of that, but Dad drew the, 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 uh, the, line, the boundaries in a little bit more for Mom and just said, only Sunday morning. And Marcella said, he's letting you come and gather, and church isn't just when we gather. It's a relationship like we're having here between Sundays. You need to submit to your husband on this. And my mom did sweetly, and my dad respected that. And by the time I, was, uh, I moved to Clarkston, Michigan, to attend Springfield Christian Academy in fifth grade, I was 10 years old. Springfield at that time, maybe CCA had the same thing. I had to turn in a slip every Monday morning at church that I went, or at school, that I went to church three times over the weekend. And, uh, and so my mom and I went to the principal and said, we're only allowed to go Sunday mornings. And, and so they, they, they worked something out where I could call, count Sunday school as one, Sunday morning service as one, and then Monday night Awana as, as a church service, and I could remain at the school. That's how we, I had to grow up na navigating that with mom and with a sweet attitude, and mom submitted to that. Well, as my dad and mom stayed married through those years, my sisters had been grown and, and married and moved, moved away, there was uh, one of my sisters would tell me on a regular basis that there was concern for me as I was home alone for um, a bunch of years with just mom and dad, and there was concern that would the marriage last, and, uh, and it did. And as I got older, I kind of orchestrated some family dates that we would do, maybe go to a movie and a dinner or something like that. Uh, our, our family spoke the language of golf, and my mom even got into it to have another excuse to pull up into dad's life. And, and, uh, and that was uh, actually some sweet times there. When I was 
22, and, and I had this lovely fiancé that was coming into our family. Uh, my dad adored my, my wife, my fiancé, from the start. And my dad was impressed with Christian education, so much so he paid for me to go K through 12, and then, and then college, he helped me and my sisters as well. And uh, he had no problem, he wanted me to go to University of Michigan and study business, uh, but he had no problem with me going to Bob Jones University because he saw the fruit in my sister's lives and my, my brothers-in-law, brother, brothers-in-law's lives. So he was, um, he was very open and pleased with what he saw. But then, of course, in October of 1989, Dad uh, found out, he didn't tell Mom and the kids yet, but he found out that he was, um, he was, he had, he had, um, Leukemia. He had a acute leukemia. Thank you, Glenn. Now, I didn't know what that meant, but that's like the bad one. And, and he told mom, and well, when he found out that he was likely, there's a good chance he wouldn't survive. He found that out in October. The doctor says, I want to start treating you now. And my dad says, I got to get my house in order first. I'll come in in December. And so he told mom and then that he had to go to the hospital in December. And we were home from semester break um, in, in uh, my first semester as a grad student. We were married now. And Dad came downstairs and told us one day, hey, will you give me a ride to the hospital? And I said, well, yeah, why? When? Tomorrow. I was like, well, this is odd. And Mom, do you know anything about this? No. And what's happening, Dad? Oh, they need to run some tests on you. I was like, yeah, I'll take you there. It was to Henry Ford Hospital right down here in the city. And so... I, we all got in the car. You were with us in that trip, and we all went to the, got in the car. I got him down to um, the test, and I remember the doctor's name was Tony. Uh, she was a, a delightful uh, female doctor, and, and we got Dad in a room. He was going to have to stay in several days. He didn't know how long. I'm like, this is odd. We're going into Christmas, and my sisters are coming home. This is not like Dad to, to chance missing anything at home with everyone there, and, and uh, so we got him tucked in the room there, and I I, I stepped out in the hall with Tony. I followed her out in the hall. I said, so what kind of tests are you running on my dad? He hasn't told us. She looked at me. I'll never forget. She says, tests? We're not running any tests on your dad. Your dad has something called acute, uh, acute leukemia, and, and he's not likely going to make it through this. So I'm absorbing this, and my wife was there, and, and mom came out, and I said, you guys got to listen to Tony, and she filled us in. And to make a longer story short, Dad passed away on just a, um, a week or so later on Christmas morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. I remember crying my eyes out. When I, the night I talked to Tony that night, went home. I was by myself. I was, I was the only son. I'm a new husband. I'm like, how do I lead anyone through this? I, 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 I have never been through this with a parent. And I just... Empty my heart out to the Lord. I said, Lord, you've got to help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to be. But I do know what I need to say. I need one more chance, Lord, to give my dad the gospel. I had given it to him many times. And, and I said, but Lord, there's so many people in and out of the room. I said, I need some time when I'm there tomorrow where no one's coming in the room. We told no co-workers. Or we told us co-workers, uh, no visitors except family. So that, that cut down on the flow. And I got to give the gospel to him. Um, day or two before he passed and he he assured me in that moment that he still never stopped believing and in his own words he had been a rascal but he was still holding on to Christ he told Lori's dad the same thing a few months earlier when Lori's dad witnessed to him and he also told Pastor Rhodes that Pastor Rhodes told me I believe your dad is saved and he's his savior's been after him and he's not been responding so this is what I believe is happening Savior's coming for him to take him to the front office, so to speak. Well, he passed, and I, and I, I, that's all I know. I know as much as you know whether I'll see Dad in heaven or not. God knows the heart. But that was an interesting closing of a chapter in our family, and especially in my mom's marriage. Because it's going to be at that moment that it really shows whether mom was real all those years. Or if she was just trying to navigate and manage the situation and make the most of it. You know what happened? My mom, with this freedom, just blossomed into the church. 
You couldn't, if the doors were open, she was there. If there was a corporate prayer meeting on a Wednesday night, there's no way she's going to miss that if she's the only one there. Uh, she was there Sunday mornings. She was playing the piano again for church. Um, she was there whenever she could be there. She, she signed up for Bible studies during the week. Um, she signed up to, for piano lessons under Powell, is her last name, up in Midland. She'd drive all the way up to Midland, Michigan and get a piano lesson every week. Not Midland. Um, Renee Willett's church. What is it? Just say it. Bridgeport, Michigan. And she was just having the time of her life. Why? Because all those years... Through her gracious submission during a difficult marriage, a very difficult marriage, it was real. And, and, it, and, it, and she just blossomed. But it was, a, it was a difficult story and a long story. It's interesting that um, my mom's example now is something I use when I counsel people who struggle with knowing how to live with an unsaved or unbelieving spouse. As a matter of fact, I used that counsel recently when it came to, do I still come to church when my spouse isn't regenerated? And the answer is absolutely yes. But not with an attitude where you spin on your heel and march out of the house and leave them in the dust. Talk it through and express that you want to spend time with your spouse too. And let me tell you the story about my mom. And how grace won there. And my dad did not leave this life bitter against my mom's picketing and, and, and nitpicking, nitpicking at him all those years. It was a, a response of grace. It wasn't perfect. She had her struggles. But it was a response of grace. And I'll just say this. By God's grace, all three of us kids are pretty deep into life now. We're all grandparents. We have kids. We all, by God's grace, love the Lord and that has to be a work of grace in each of our hearts. But again, that's something I think that we can trace back, at least me and Sherry and Pam, to the fact that mom stayed in that marriage and figured out a way to blossom with grace. That's my story. Now, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands this evening for two questions. How many of you would say with your uplifted hand that this is your story too growing up? As you look at your parents, it was difficult because of unbelief or disobedience. Anyone else raise your hand with me? I just want to get a visual. Look at this. Look around. Okay, let me ask this question. Raise your hands on this one. How many of you would say, it might not be my story, but I have family members far off or nearby, or I have friends that this is their story right now in their marriage? Raise your hand. Anyone? Yeah. So maybe, just maybe, a series like this is timely. I'm going to ask three more questions. I don't want you to raise your hand. Just in your own heart say, I could raise my hand on that, but don't raise your hand. I'm just going to lay these out there. How many of you would say, this is your fear in your marriage or in a loved one's marriage right now that this might break out? Maybe you could raise your hand. Maybe you couldn't there. Don't raise it. Or I could throw this out there. How many of you would say this is my reality in my marriage right now? Don't raise your hand. But perhaps you could. And one more question where I don't want you to raise your hand. But I wonder if you could. How many of you would be able to say you're that spouse? You're that spouse that the one that you have married is trying to figure out how to live with you. They're faithful in their faith, in their walk with Christ, but you are the one that is wondered about as to whether it's just disobedience on your part or there's no life in you at all to begin with. I wonder if you're that spouse. Don't raise your hand, but I'm throwing it out there. I want to start this series tonight that will go into the fall, when I'm speaking on Sunday nights, two kingdoms and one house living with a disobedient or unsaved spouse. This is a conversation we need to have as a church family and very candidly. And I am choosing to have this go live stream and be recorded on our website or on Sermon Audio so you can refer to it in the future or refer others to it. Um, where do we start? 
where do we start? What's our, what has to be the first sermon or two along these lines? And we may take two to get through this this evening. Uh, where do we start? Part one is what I call the disruption. The disruption of marital unity. You say, what's coming up after this? We're going to see a case study. First of all, we're going to see why is this so common. Then we're going to see a case study to give you hope. Then we're going to have a study on what are not your options if you find yourself in this situation. And then we're also going to do another study about what are your options if this is you. And then we're going to do another study out of Romans chapter 12 of what are your rights when you are wronged in your marriage. And then we'll probably have one final study where I share with you um, some final thoughts of the opportunities that such a marriage has, opportunities for the gospel, opportunities for the glory of God, and then I already have in my hands a four-page letter I'm going to read to you that a lady in the church I pastored in North Carolina said, this is my story, I've written it out for you, and I want you to share it every chance you get whenever you speak on this topic. So we got, that's our roadmap. But what I want to start with is this, the actual disruption of marital unity. How do we get to this point in a Christian marriage? And I think that there are two major culprits for this. And the two major culprits, I'll just give them to you, they're in your notes. Number one is a spouse who is outside of Christ, that's an unbeliever. And number two is a spouse who is disobedient to Christ. But let's take a moment tonight and use our, our minutes together to, to dress these out tonight, to get a firm grip as to how can this be? How can this be? The first culprit is this, a spouse who is outside of Christ. You say, well, how do we get to this point? How do we get to the point? How can I get to a point where I find that I'm married to an unbeliever. And I think there's three possible routes into this situation, three possible ways to be found in this world of being married to an unbeliever. The first one is one that you can guess right off the bat. This may be the result of disobedience on the believer's part prior to the marriage. I mean, if, if you're a believer and you marry an unbeliever, knowingly that's disobedience, and guess what kind of marriage you have? What you find yourself in. You're married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, here's where I like to always ask my brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we know that Bible's clear, the Bible's clear counsel to us is not to marry an unbeliever? How do we know that? Usually the first passage that comes to our mind is the one that your Bibles are open to right now. We find our minds starting, wanting to start this conversation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's good. And I think that this is applicable. But I just want to challenge you on something when it comes to this passage. Don't forget the context that Paul's talking to the Corinthians about, A. And B, don't think this is the final silver bullet on this topic. It's helpful. But I'll say this at best when it comes to the topic we're covering now being married to an unbeliever, this passage gives us a clear principle. Yes, it does. But you know there's another passage we should be able to go to that gives you an apostolic example? And beyond that, beyond a, 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 a text that's a principle like 2 Corinthians 6, and beyond the apostolic example, there's thirdly, and I think most importantly, a very clear command. Well, let's start with the principle first. We see this here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You know these verses. You've read them before. He's talking to the believers, and he's talking to them about their life of worship primarily. That's the context we have going on here. Worshiping the true God, responding to the true gospel, while living in a pagan, idolatrous environment there in Corinth. That's the context. And it's in that context that we can we find this principle that applies to what Paul's covering in the moment, but we can take the principle and apply it broader. And it's in, we can start reading in verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Or some of your translations say unequally yoked together. We say, what does that mean? Well, I mean, if you put a, 
if you put a, a cat and a poodle into the same yoke, you're going to have a problem. Maybe not. They're both alike. Uh, but work with me there, right? Um, if, you have a, if you have a cow and a, and a water buffalo in the same yoke trying to work together, it's going to be chaotic. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Is he talking about marriage? Well, not mentioning it here, but get the principle. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What's the, what's the in, initial context here? He's talking about true worship and false worship. Okay, You have to understand that before we look for a principle about our other topic. I do think we see a principle here, and it's this. Don't be involved in a spiritual endeavor with an unbeliever. We wouldn't do that as a church. We're not going to connect with um, the Jehovah's Witness for a common effort in the gospel. Uh, We're not going to connect with um, uh, a a pagan worshiper from um, uh, the local college. And say, Let's, we, we're both trying to accomplish the same thing. I'll do it with Jesus. You do it with uh, the, the spirits that you channel. He's like, we can't do that. Bring that into this context. And you see, that's what he's saying. But back it all, pan back just a little bit. If we are involved on in a spiritual endeavor, spiritual endeavor, don't bring believers together with unbelievers. Some can argue whether or not this is talking about business practice. I personally don't think it does. A business partnership, though requiring different worldviews to get along with each other, is not necessarily a a spiritual enterprise in its mission statement. As individual believers, they have mission statements that are spiritual or not. If they can make it work together, I don't think that they're under, under church discipline for being in business together. But marriage, not just church, but marriage, I think we can argue from Scripture, is a spiritual endeavor. A spiritual one flesh goal of projecting Jesus through this marriage, through the submission of the wife and the gracious leadership and care of the husband. Showing a picture of the headship of Christ and the the beautiful completion of the the church uh, that Christ has redeemed. And that scene in that marriage, that's a spiritual adventure. How can we portray that if we actively pursue marriage to an unbeliever? So I think we can come here, but don't end the discussion here. This is just a principle, and it's a good one. But I want you to see an apostolic example. Go back to the left to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here's an apostolic example. It's like as we go through these from a principle to an example to a command, they're picking up weight. And that command is hold the most weight. But we have an apostolic example here. You say, it's Paul. Yeah, but hear him out. Chapter 9, verse 1. He's defending himself again against his critics there at Corinth. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right, look at this line, do we not have a, a right to take along, what, is it, what are the next couple words? Uh, what? Believing wife. I mean, Paul, as he's going through his freedom, even as an apostle, he says, I have a freedom to, to take a wife in marriage with one proviso. She has to be a believer in Jesus Christ. That carries some weight. We have a principle. That's good. We have an apostolic example. That's even stronger. But we have an explicit command 
just a little bit earlier in this same letter. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And follow along in verses, uh, just verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. No, stop. Stop there. Remember where we are in 1 Corinthians 7. As you go through in your devotions and mark up your copy of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 7, I'll save you a big headache by telling you now that he's dealing with four types of individuals. And you'll see these come up all the way through the whole chapter. He's talking about those who are currently married. Guess what word he uses for them? Married. He's talking about those, a second category, who have never been married. And the technical word throughout this chapter for that is the word virgin. And then you have those who are, uh, are widows, and it means that their spouse has died. That's a third category you're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7. And then there's a fourth category that you're going to see, and it's those who used to be married but are no longer married now because they have become unmarried. And that, those are going to be the divorcees in the church. Those are the four categories. And if you go into this chapter with those keys, it'll make a lot more sense to you. Make sure you keep those categories distinct. Well, he's talking to that category of widow and widower when he comes to verse 39. If a wife is bound, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. In other words, bound means it's not supposed to be unbound. And he's already talked about being married to unbelievers, as we'll see in a moment. But, he says in verse 39, if her husband is dead, or if literally, if he falls asleep, if he dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes. But here's the proviso, here's the command. Only in the Lord. Remember, when the gospel came to Corinth, and we're going we're to look at this in just a few moments, but the gospel bomb landed in Corinth, a very pagan land, and that gospel did exactly what Jesus and the gospels said it would do, and it brought division in some homes. Some spouses got married or got saved, and others didn't. Some children got married, and their parents didn't. Some parents got married, and, and uh, their children didn't. And what was one thing on Monday in Corinth was all changed by Tuesday as people came to Christ, so to speak. And now houses are, are mixed with belief and unbelief. It's in that context, Paul writes, if, if a spouse loses their spouse to death, they can marry anyone they want with one proviso. Now that you have something to say about it, no surprises by the gospel coming to Corinth. Now that you have a choice to make, you have to stay in bounds with one requirement. It needs to be someone who's a believer. That's your strongest verse right there. Do the general principle, the apostolic example. But this is clear. This is clear. You know, when I was working at a camp, Camp Kobiak actually, when I was in college, one of the speakers that came in, uh, all I remember is he was from from Colorado. His name was Craig Scott. I have no idea what's ever become of him. But man, he had one sermon that he preached the first day of camp, and he kept re re repeating the refrain of that sermon for all the rest of his sermons that week. It was powerful. And I still remember it word perfect. You ready? Here it is. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings conflict. I mean, that's a true statement especially in what we're talking about here. This is a warning I'm, I'm, I'm shooting out over your heads right now, that if you still have the option of marriage in front of you, you must only marry a believer. So much so that I would, I would argue that that's an issue of obedience and, and would be one where the church would pursue you to get you to plead with you to repent if you're heading in that direction. It's that strong. What do we do with this verse? Proverbs 13, 15 is so true. The way of the transgressor is hard. Our Lord's limits for us, listen, our Lord's limits for us grow out of his immense eternal love for us. 
When we talk about a believer marrying an unbeliever, we're talking about light uniting with darkness. We're talking about someone who can see connecting with someone who's blind, someone who's alive being one with someone who's dead. There's a real danger here. And it's not just the disobedience of the believing spouse. There's another danger too. And this is not infrequent. But the one who would be a believing spouse in that marriage oftentimes will actually and eventually give in and follow the unbelieving spouse down the rabbit hole. And not too many of them make it back. My mom did. And I think I'm thankful for God's grace in that. The way of the transgressor is hard. You say, well, how do I find myself married to an unbeliever? Because this may be the result of disobedience on your part prior to the marriage. And here we are now. You're married to an unbeliever. A second way this can come about is this. This may be the result of a conversion within the marriage. In other words, two unbelievers got saved, like we're talking about in Corinth. And then the gospel comes in and stirs everything up. Our Lord says it'll be like a sword sometimes. It just divides families. Uh, as far as their loyalties, as far as their kingdoms, and suddenly, in a home where there was only one kingdom, now there's two kingdoms under the same roof. At this point, right? We don't know the story down the road. The other spouse may still come to faith. We just don't know. So Paul has to write a huge portion of 1 Corinthians 7 to those spouses who had come to faith and, their, and their, their husband or their wife had not yet. What's the plan? And Paul gives his plan. Look at chapter 7, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married, okay, we know this, uh, this is one of the four categories, and these are the Christian marrieds. Verse 10, to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, in other words, because he's not a believer, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife if she's an unbeliever. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, but if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Another way of referring to divorce. For the, listen to this, the unbelieving husband is sanctified. Remember what that means? That Greek word means set apart. There's something that this unbelieving spouse has that many other unbelievers don't have. What is it? the presence in his life and his home of a spouse who's in the light. To the rest I say, let's, let's look at that again. Uh, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. Doesn't mean he's saved just by her presence, but there's light in that house. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. I think... At the very least, with that last, that's a difficult statement. We know that they don't get, the children aren't saved because mom's saved. That doesn't get them in automatically. So what does it mean? I think we have to carry that same argument into an understanding with the children that they are holy. They are set apart because there's a Christian parent in that home. There's a point of light in that home that so many homes don't have. And who knows what that point of light might bring about in the passing of time, but maybe the other with salvation of the other family members. I believe Paul's saying, if you're saved and your unsaved spouse wants to stay with you, you stay in that house because you are shining a light that will affect them. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, keep reading. Verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So how do I find myself in a marriage to an unbeliever? It could be the second reason. It's the result of your conversion that happened after you were already married. It's not that you knowingly married an unbeliever as a believer, 
But both of you were unbelievers when you got married. And then the gospel came for you. But then there's a third reason. I guess I should start clicking these PowerPoint slides if I made them, right? And the third reason is this. This may be a total surprise within the marriage. This may be a total surprise within the marriage. I want you to look at a verse that's uh, very important in this conversation as a general principle. And we're actually, as we bring out the proposed revisions for the Constitution and bylaws for you as a congregation, for you to consider, we're going to have to come to this verse as well when it comes to church discipline. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, talking of false teachers, but we also have a principle here. And it reads this way, They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they were all not, or that they all are not of us. Now again, it's talking about false teaching in the immediate context here, but there's the principle that at some point in the life of a fellowship of believers, like a church or by extension a marriage, a Christian marriage, what's going to happen sometimes, it's, it's, it's heart-rending at the church level or the family level, one that was professing Christ. Time always tells the truth, right? And with the passing of time, it's revealed that this spouse who had declared to be a Christian is walking away from the faith. You say they like they lost their salvation? No, they're just revealing they were one of the three soils, one of the first three soils. They were never truly alive to begin with. Time will always tell the truth on that. And it's a surprise within the marriage. The spouse thought, I thought I married a believer, and after all these years, maybe decades, Time has revealed that there really never was life in them. This is a horror for me as a pastor. I have been doing premarital counseling precisely since 1992. I remember the first couple I did when I was on staff at the university. Uh, it was someone from Sterling Heights, too. I had to go all the way to South Carolina to counsel someone from Sterling Heights for a premarital. And I've been doing a ton of it since then. I love premarital counseling. Everyone in the room wants to be in the room usually. A lot of your counseling, not everyone wants to be in the room. This is one of those situations where like everyone's like, I'm glad I'm here. Let's go. Um, and I can think immediately of two couples within the last decade, who a decade and a half, <clears throat> who uh, I've grilled on salvation. I have uh, come back to it time and time again within the counseling only to find out with the passing of the years that one of the members of each of these two marriages who professed Christ was never really regenerated. In one case, the marriage was severed very quickly. First one, after all those years of counseling, that I had a divorce now on the, on the stats. Um, the other one's still together, trying to figure things out, and in a dangerous place in my mind. It's like, wow, we got into marriage. I thought we were both believers, and then it's a surprise. I remember when I was pastoring down in North Carolina, I think I've told you this story. I'm going to use the names, um, I'll use the name Ward and Ann. How's that? That's not their real name. And Ward had come to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to study for the ministry at Piedmont Baptist Bible College, which was two miles from us, our church. We had a lot of their students and some of their faculty in our church. And he had studied, he had left uh, his, his secular job and had found a job in Winston-Salem, and he was enrolled in Bible college, wanted to be a preacher, and, and, uh, and his wife was just as giddy as could be. She was so excited about him following God's call in her life, and it wasn't long that he was in our church, and time started telling the truth about Ward. Ward had been hiding some very strong liquor in his house, behind his water cooler to be exact, his water heater, excuse me, um, where his wife would never look. And when she wasn't home, he was hitting it pretty hard to kind of take the edge off of his work, which wasn't an ideal job, and the pressures from his studies, which only added to it. 
and he found himself turning to liquor and to drunkenness time and again. And in his drunkenness, he would make um, phone calls to other ladies in the church that were married during the day. And they were inappropriate phone calls. I'll just say that. And of course, when that came to light, uh, the church loved him enough to approach him. First me, one-on-one, um, -on -one, and then several of us and him. And this took about a month, uh, maybe a little over a month. And then we had to call the church to action. We didn't give them details. Just keep things in general terms, as we're going to talk about here in our church. And then... Uh, and we called him to repentance for over a month, and he didn't. And suddenly he was put out of the church by a church foe, out of obedience to Matthew 18. And now his church, this wife's church, had to treat him as an unbeliever. We don't know his heart, but we're supposed to treat him as an unbeliever. I cannot tell you how crestfallen and difficult this was for, for Anne. Her world was crashing down around her. I remember one person in our church went to Ann, and he didn't believe in church discipline. He says, I'm so sorry for what the church is doing. And Ann stood, Ann was about this tall. She, he, she stood up to this guy and said, please don't ever say that again to me. I've never been in a church where we've been loved and protected like we are being right now, where someone would come to try to help. And he says, she, she would say, I want you to love my husband to whatever degree is necessary to bring him to repentance. He never repented. We reached out to him. Never repented. Moved to another, moved out to the coastal city in North Carolina, and I lost touch with them. And uh, she did reach out one time through the years and uh, was still married. But uh, he still hadn't repented. And there now she was years into her marriage, years after this, and it was a total surprise to her. So, how do you get into this situation? A spouse who is outside of Christ? Well, it could have been a result of disobedience on the believer's part prior to marriage or maybe the result of a conversion within the marriage or maybe a total surprise within the marriage. That's the disruption. That's the first culprit, a spouse who is outside of Christ. But there's a second culprit, and it is a spouse who is disobedient to Christ, one that would claim to be a believer and may truly be a believer. But they are on a trajectory of disobedience, at least in the present. We don't know what will happen in the future as far as church discipline or something like that. You say, well, how can this happen? How can this happen? I'm going to throw a few pastoral observations out there, then we have to tie this off. First of all, sometimes I've seen this. It's a rejection of God's call on his or her life. Don't just be thinking husbands here. This can be the wife. And God may have put a call on his or her life vocationally that they are fighting and they're disobeying. I want you to jot down a familiar text for this one. And it's a text that we have about a prophet named Jonah. It's Jonah 1, verses 1 through 3. Just, just, by, just by way of reminder, um, I want you to be reminded of Jonah's story and how he's rejecting God's call on his or her life. He was... He liked the first assignment he got where he was able to say the Lord was going to restore land to his people. It might have even gained a name for himself, but he didn't like this next assignment. Jonah 1, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. That phrase is repeated several times in this, just in this chapter. You'll see it again in verse 10. And, uh, and it's, it's the theme here. He's, this prophet is running from God's call on his life. This could be a call vocationally. It could be the husband's refusal to go. It could be the wife's refusal to follow. It can be anything like that. But not just vocationally. It's also fighting God's call for who they're supposed to be. I would throw in here an example of the four-direction disciple. It's God's will for this husband or for this, or this wife, for both of them to grow towards God as a worshiper, towards all people as a servant, towards the lost 
as a witness and towards those at the church as a discipler. But you have a spouse sometimes. It could be the wife. It could be the husband who folds their, their arms, locks their knees, grits their teeth, sets their jaw, and says, I'm not going to do it. What's a spouse, a spouse supposed to do in that situation? This is one way it can fall out that I've seen before in counseling. Another way is this. It could be a refusal to fulfill his or her role as a spouse. For this one, jot down Ephesians chapter 5. And turn there with me. We're almost finished with this part. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Ephesians 5, 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. The wife must see to it that she respects her husband. See, a lot of that's directed at the husband. Yeah, it is. Because we have thick heads. But understand that it can go both ways. A wife can refuse what is assigned to her from Scripture and her marriage, and the husband can refuse. You say, well, what is it that they can do to, or not do to fulfill their role as a spouse? Well, I, I see four lacks often in the counseling room. There's a lack of presence. I mean, you've got to be together to live out Ephesians 5. It can't just be done with your thumbs you got to be in the same room. You have to seek each other out. Just like the Song of Solomon, we read the, the wife of the bride saying, I must go about the city and be with the one that my heart loves. you got to be in proximity. And if a spouse is avoiding their spouse, that's disobedience. It's a lack of presence. Uh, it can be a lack of intimacy. A lack of intimacy for that one, write down 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality. I'm sorry, that's 1 Corinthians. It's not. I'm sorry. It's 1 Corinthians chapter um, 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. A husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, there's a lot to unpack in those verses. But I just want to mention to you verse 5 for this point. You ready for verse 5? Stop depriving one another. What's that talking about? Stop seasons in your marriage where there's no sexual intimacy. That is to stop. Paul, what are you saying here? Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, like fasting. And then he says this. And come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You understand there are two ways that Satan will get to your marriage to destroy it. We're told his game plan. Number one in this text is to interrupt your sexual intimacy, the regularity of that in marriage. I'll just say that, and you know what I'm saying. There's a second way that we're told he will interrupt um, the relationship, not just in a Christian home, but even in a local church. 
and it's with a lack of communication. You have a lack of presence, lack of intimacy, lack of communication. Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It says this. Verse 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Listen to this. Next verse. And do not give the devil an opportunity. I'll tell you how Satan wants to to interrupt your marriage. It's to keep you away from each other. It's to keep you um, from enjoying each other sexually. And it's to interrupt your communication and let your anger run without check. If you see those things, the enemy's there. We're going to have a Sunday. I'm just, I got like three sermon series after 1 Peter that I'm dying to do. One is on basic self-defense, and it's a full theology of spiritual warfare. And we're going to have one whole message of that series on your marriage. And then there's a lack of discipleship, lack of presence, lack of intimacy, lack of communication, and lack of discipleship, a mutual concern for each other's spirituality. This is, these are just samples of what it means to refuse to fulfill his or her role as a spouse. But there's another way it can be disobedient. Refusal to fulfill his or her role as a parent. As a parent. I'm here in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You say, well, that's just the fathers, not mothers. It's the Greek word pater. It is father. You're right. But it's him as the representative of the, of the parental unit. He's leading, but they're a team. That's what you see there in that verse. It's clear. We're supposed to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You say, well, what would this look like in parenting? A lack of presence again. You've got to be present and engaged to parent. A lack of correction And Proverbs, the book of Proverbs lights up at that one. A lack of control, not just of your children, I'm talking control of your anger. Lack of knowledge, you don't read scripture, you don't get counsel on parenting. And even a lack of interest. That's how a spouse can become disobedient in their marriage. They're disengaging from parenting. Oh, my spouse is doing such a good job, I don't have to engage. The the mandate's for both of you. And if you pull out, you're disobedient. And please don't keep using the excuse that you're not a reader. Can we just put that one in a grave in the backyard? Shallow grave. Put a lot of dirt over it. Plant flowers. Every person's a reader, if it interests you. Whether it's instructions for a new fishing reel, or instructions on the new gaming system, or the instruction, or a magazine on your hobby. Everyone's a reader. If you think it will benefit you. Every parent, moms and dads, must be reading scripture. They must be engaging biblical counsel that's based on scripture when it comes to parenting. And be involved. If you've checked out, you are now in that category of a disobedient spouse. But then there's one more way this can come about. And it's just flat, unrepentant sin in general. Unrepentant sin. I'm going to read a few verses because of time. You just write them down. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 reminds us that Christians sin. Every last one of us still struggles with sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We sin, we struggle with sin, but true believers will will repent of that and struggle and fight their flesh. And to use the language that Paul does in Romans chapter 6, they will stop yielding the members of their body as instruments of unrighteousness. They're going to fight their lust. They're going to fight their anger with all the resources and grace available in Christ. They're going to repent. They're going to walk or they're going to crawl. They're going to walk. They're going to run. They're going to fall and they're going to start over again in grace. But there are some who stop fighting. They say, this is just who I am. This is my struggle and I'm no longer 
going to fight it. That's what we're talking about. Proverbs 28, 13, he that covers his transgression will not prosper, but he that confesses and forsakes him will find help. If someone, as we'll see as a church family on Sunday mornings next month, when we study church discipline for four weeks, we're going to see that sometimes the church has to love to that point. It's the highest expression of, of capable of being shown by a church is pursuing each other when there's unrepentant sin. But understand this. If a church following lovingly the instruction of Matthew 18, and through the church, the Lord, the shepherd, is pursuing a straying lamb, and the lamb doesn't return, that professing believer needs to be put outside of the church. And the crescendo of care is suddenly silent which is meant to be jolting, to jolt them to repentance. And we're supposed to treat them as an unbeliever. We're not saying they are because we can't see their heart. But understand, in some cases like that, there still might be someone in the church that has to get in the same minivan with an excommunicated person and go home with them and make this thing work in the marriage. Unrepentant sin. So I think we've answered the question of, well, what are the two main culprits that disrupt a marriage, a Christian marriage that we're talking about? There are biblical examples we could go to. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no test that's overtaking, but such as this common man. And Peter agrees. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, Peter says, know this, that all around the world right now, there are other brothers and sisters going through the tests and fighting Satan himself like you are. Others are, are in this. That doesn't fix your problem, but it gives you hope that other people are struggling too and making it, and you can. So for the sake of examples, we could go to Job and study him. Remember when the Lord allowed Satan to take so much from Job? There was still one more person that wanted to take something from him, and it was his wife. Remember Job's wife? Mrs. Job said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Or we could go to Isaac in Genesis chapter 27. He had a wife named Rebecca who was a master eavesdropper, liar, and manipulator. We could go to her, to him as a case study. We could go to Solomon. Uh, I... 1 Kings 11, 3 through 4, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. He went down the rabbit hole after them. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. But there's a there is a case study I want to go to in our next study in this series. It's about a lady named Abigail. She was married to a man named Nabal. Remember these words? 1 Samuel 25, 3. Now the man's name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And in our next study, we're going to study her life in that scene. And you know what the name of that is going to be? A Portrait of Grace. That's what's going to be our demonstration of 1 Corinthians 10 or 1 Peter 5 to give you hope. So here's my goal for this series. You ready for my goal for this series? I have several. First of all, I want it to be a warning to you. If you're not married or if you're in a place where a spouse dies and, and you have this option open up again, it's a warning not to marry an unbeliever, period. Number two, I have this goal. I want it to give hope to those who find themselves in marriages like we've just discovered this evening. I can't guarantee that things will change in the heart of that spouse, but I can point to what Scripture says, and it has a lot to say to someone in a difficult relationship like that. And of all people, Peter's going to have a lot to say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. I'm going to leave that message in the Sunday morning series. A third goal I have is that you'll have a, a newfound resolve of grace in your own life to endure and be that light in your home. 
A fourth goal I have for this series is to create counselors out of every last one of you. Whether this is your story or not, I want you to be able to counsel with this material to help others. And I have one more goal for this series, and it's a goal of rescue. A goal of rescue. If you are that unbelieving spouse or that disobedient spouse, you're here with us or online, I'm coming for you. I want you to repent. I want you to be in a place of safety. If you've never accepted Christ, if it's been a facade, you're one of the first three soils, I'm laying it out with you in this, in this series. I want you to come to Christ. If you are truly regenerated but you're running from the Lord and his will for you as a husband, as a parent, as a spouse, as a believer, I'm coming for you. Because I want you to see the weight that has come down on your husband's wife or life or his shoulders or, or your, your wife's shoulders of how they have to navigate life with you and they're doing it because of their love for you and their burden for you when it comes to the gospel. If you are that unbelieving or disobedient spouse, I'm gunning for you. And I want to hear your story told someday and how grace came for you. Would you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer this evening? Father, I don't know that we have said anything new today, but we've organized it so that we can feel the urgency of looking into this wherever we are in life, whatever decade we're in, whatever state we're in, as far as being unmarried or married or widowed or uh, virgin, never been married. Um, Lord, help us to not be able to get this off our minds as we drive to work tomorrow, as we push the lawnmower, as we drive anywhere. And I pray that the warning and the rescue and the training of counselors will be very clear to us. And even as we anticipate our next study in this series, the study of the life of Abigail as a case study, create an urgency in us to be here. And I pray that before we even get any deeper in this series, we'll already hear of